Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Christine McDaniel, principal and lead business intermediary for the Magnolia firm, where they help business owners achieve a seamless exit. Thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Ron, for having me. So I'm curious, that's a mouthful, principal and lead business intermediary. Like why not CEO or broker or like what's with the title? I've never liked being the CEO title ever with my last, with my software company. I just had to use that word, right? And, but before that, it was always founder. That's what I just usually say. But yeah, principal sounds a little bit different with a firm. So I don't use CEO stuff. <laughs> I always get around it. Business intermediary, that's like, I love, brokers have such a bad reputation. I'm sure you already know. I'm sure. I don't. I make jokes to... about brokers all the time. Like the, the reason they're labeled appropriately most of the time. If you work with one, you might end up broker. So. Oh, oh, that's a good one. I'm going to steal that, Ron. I got broker Bob on all their social media. People can check out and they'll mm-hmm. die because I like dress up as an old man broker, but uh, <laughs> oh, fun. Oh my God. Like I'm, eventually, I'm like, well, those old brokers are not on TikTok or Instagram. So I think I'm good. Nobody's complained yet. Some fun little skits there. But yeah, bad, bad, bad reputation. I love innovating. And I'm just like, oh, business intermediary is just somebody that's mediating, right? Between two parties. And I love that. I love helping first-time buyers. A lot of them are first-time buyers. Every single transaction we've done, they've been unrepresented completely. So I just hold their hand through the process and it makes things, there's less cooks in the kitchen. The transaction goes quicker. So yeah, that's, I, if I'm talking about other brokers, I use the word broker, (laughs) but if I'm talking about myself or my team, business intermediaries. Yeah, we do have one of our sponsors that's a major broker, but man, I spent a lot of time doing due diligence and pick somebody that's been doing it since the late eighties. And like the biggest thing I'm always looking for is like, what is your heart in it and how much skill and expertise you have? We were talking about this earlier. You have bought, sold, or worked with over twenty plus companies of your own before you got into brokerage, right? And I was just I was really kind of it was cool because I was looking through them. I was like, wait a second, I read about that. I read about that. Let's just kind of start there. Let's go into your origin story. How did you go from I guess you can go back as far as you want. I always joke around and say, hey, you were born and now today you ended up on a show on M- about M&A. How did you, can you fill in the gap in between? How did you get here? Definitely the girl with the lemonade stand and the snow cone stand and the selling candy bars out of my backpack. My dad was self-employed in HVAC. So by age 11, he made me the little secretary and at age 11, it's fun, right? <laughs> by age 14, I was doing all the accounts payables, receivables. I was touching teams. By then, cell phones came out and the Nextel walkie-talkies. So 
back in the day, I'm dating myself. So I loved it. I loved it. Worked all summer answering phones and for him. And I just, yeah, I just made my voice sound older than 11 year old. So that was fun. What else? And then by 23, I started, I went into real estate first from age 17 to 23. Um, doing property management, got my real estate license right when I turned 18, and that will come full circle in a second. And then I started my cleaning company with $300. I was 23 years old. I had a ton of debt and I had to like bartend at night to pay that, clean houses all day. It was wild. And I exited that business after like five or six years for six, low six figures. But when you're mm. 29, you're like, this is amazing. And so real estate license, I kept active all that time. So 20 years and to become a business broker, that's all you need in the state of California. And I'm just like, yes, thank God I already have it. So that's kind of my story. But yeah, ni last 19 years built, sold, acquired, rolled up 20 companies total, 10 were startups. Cause I just love the crazy chaos. And then once it gets boring and systematized, which is usually the five-year mark, it's usually when I exit, I never have an exit plan. I don't think that's a good idea. Just concentrate on customer service and culture and your team and like providing an incredible experience. And then that exit will naturally come. That's kind of the wild story of my life. But my, the thing I'm most proud about of those companies, 20 of them, is every single one is still in business to this day, except for one. And I even went just last week, Eco Chateau, which was my biggest exit five years ago. The same owners bought it five years ago. I saw they opened a massive third location. I had two. They just opened their third. It's it's beautiful. And is it's that the so uh, luxury medical spa? Yeah, not medical though, but yeah, luxury wellness wellness okay. spa. It was a good one. It was cool. fun. Yeah. That sounds like something to be fun to own. I like to meditate and get a massage here and there. Like, but I want a really nice place. I don't go anywhere creepy. I've been married for 15, 15 years. I like to keep it that way. And I've, like I was talking about you before the show or about this before the show, I've actually read through some of the businesses and I recognize some of them. So a lot of your startups are really creative and unique in their space. The tree rental service and the, like you rent a Christmas tree and you guys get it back and you plant it and really green, really I think I would take off now too, because the world's starting to focus a lot more on that green space. I'm sorry that the lady who bought it shut that one down. You said that that's the one. That I know that's the one. And I would have taken it back. I was like, <laughs> once they, it's like the website's down for two years. I just noticed she's like, yeah, yeah, I shut down two years ago. I mean, 32 million Christmas trees get cut every yeah. single year and just in the US, right? We had the potted and singing dan dancing elves would deliver it. It's definitely hard because I'm, it's like I'm running it parallel with whatever company I have. And mm -hmm. it's like, hey, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult holiday I season. I just was like, I can't do this anymore. That's interesting. Like I was looking through some of the uh, listings you have. You got some pretty cool, interesting things on there, some subscription-based stuff. I was looking, do you specialize in a particular type of business or particular space like some firms do? Oh, definitely. We're all digital now. So we work with businesses around the world now. Digital recurring revenue is amazing. That's huge. Subscription box is recurring revenue. Those are super hot. So we can mm -hmm. get those in, and sell them really quickly. Yeah. Anything remote with recurring revenue is like amazing. But yeah, digital marketing agencies, digital PR firms, that's kind of our wheelhouse now. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. That's an interesting space. I did. I participated in a marketing roll-up last year mm. and I was their chief marketing sales officer. So that's what my master's degree is in. 
but it it bought me a ticket in to participate into a big marketing roll up where we were acquiring marketing agencies and we sold our interest in that to some two of the partners on it wanted to take it a different direction so they bought us out so in 2023 we're probably magnolia firm's going to launch like a venture arm right i would love to do a digital marketing like a marketing agency roll up because mm -hmm. that's like my biggest passion is marketing especially digitally so yeah that's great we could talk after the show and stuff. I could give you some insight. I like, cause we managed to get in less than 200 days, we had 216, 218 agencies do screening calls. We can chat about more of that if you ever want to, when you get ready to do that. Cause I, I know people are still doing this phase. So anyway, let's talk about kind of what's your favorite thing inside of this space. You've been doing this quite a while. Why go from the entrepreneur that creates things to the advisory who helps other entrepreneurs achieve successful exits. Woo. I know I said, I love the chaos, but after so many years, <laughs> you're like, I'm doing this again after like the 10 startup. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't want to do this as much anymore. And honestly, it's really, I listened to an interview with you, Ron, and it's that same ethos. Like you love genuinely helping people. Like you're literally pretty much working on the biggest transaction of somebody's life. And then you're helping some, again, a lot of first-time buyers, you're helping people get freedom. COVID gave people so much freedom in their corporate life with the golden handcuffs and that they got a lot of people coming out of corporate, right? Mm -hmm. They're getting a second mortgage on their home that appreciated like crazy in the last few years. They're taking Rob's IRA out, which is where you could pull from your IRA when you quit your job. So you're your own bank, which I think that's rad. So I love it. I love how creative deals are because again, a startup is creative, right? I love doing those little innovative little businesses from scratch, but this is super creative. I mean, deals, you, you can do a deal a million different ways. And I love, love, love that part is just finding those that's like those answers and what works for both parties. I noticed throughout your, and I'm not calling you out here, but I'm just curious. I noticed throughout your success stories that the majority of them are women. Or is that because you're marketing to the women or is that just how it's fallen, fallen out? It's so funny. So we just had our one year anniversary. So we haven't even been around too, too long. And we just hit the ground running and we've had tons of success stories, which is cool. We did target women specifically because the first three people coming to me were all women. Yeah. They were female friends of mine. And they're like, hey, Christine, you've done your deals. Can you do mine? Because I've done every single one of my deals except the first. I had a broker because mm -hmm. I didn't know any different. And so, yeah, I go, okay, I'll help you girls. And then they've referred other women, et cetera. So I'm like, oh, like, let's do, our tagline was like helping female business owners achieve seamless exits. Then guys started coming and they're like, well, why can't you help us? My dad raised me. I'm around guys all the time. I get along like amazingly with men. So that's why I was like, well, no, I'll help you too. It was just that, that's what we were attracting. It was a great niche because women want to deal with a female broker i've noticed we start taking on guys it's just a, it's just a truth men are scaling even the more women are starting companies than men in the last few years men are still have scaled them bigger right because they've been doing it longer so we're we moved up market real quick so all the ones we're taking on now i mean we took on the last six are all men and then one female we're launching this week. I totally switched, but we took off, we changed our marketing. We took it off and opened it up to everybody. I'm not discriminating. 
No, that's okay. I mean, it's okay if you did, but I was just curious. I have friends in spaces, like especially in the real estate space, where they primarily focus on helping women become investors and helping them become financially independent. I'm all for it. I'll promote their stuff above anybody. I love the the underdog, I guess you could call it, right? I happen to be an old white guy. Right? If you look at me, you can tell I've got the gray beard. I'm the old white guy. But hands down, if I can promote a female entrepreneur or a minority entrepreneur, I'll do that, hands down. What you can't tell by looking at me is I'm a card-carrying Native American. I'm the whitest guy in my family. Like I would show up to family reunions, people like, who brought the white guy? My sister got most of her college paid through for the Indian thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, I look more like my mom than I do my dad. So yeah, I was just curious about that because I see that I see in the profile there and, and I could get it, right? I've talked to a fair share of my own and especially the older guys that still got that old school business what am I looking for? I'm going to be really nice here. Ego. There's an old business ego and that happens to be with some of the older brokers. So that's what I was curious if you were attracting that because they didn't have to deal with the male ego. Yeah. And let me add to this too. So we brought on from USC an intern. It was like a favor to a friend of mine, a college student last year, this summer. It was this last year in college right now. And I was very hesitant and I was like, oh, all our sellers are women. I just don't know how they're going to feel about dealing with a male for whatever reason. I, don't, I asked some of my sellers and they're like, yeah, it's fine. And it was the smartest thing we did. And now I brought, I'm bringing on a partner actually. He's a guy and I'm excited so we could scale even quicker because I can only do it so fast. Yeah, because I realized because 95% of our inquiries are men, 95% of our, the guys that buy the business are men. So they really enjoyed when I would answer the phone. I'm not kidding. They'd be like, oh, let me talk to Hunter. And I'm like, oh, well, like, like they thought it was a secretary and they're like, no, <laughs> I kid you not. They're like, can you just take a message for Hunter? I'm like, actually, I'm the lead business intermediary on this, on that listing. Like, oh, right. okay, okay. It, it happened when we were teasing. I'm like, I'll be Hunter's secretary. I'll take a message because I'd be so busy. I'm like, okay, let me take a message for Hunter. Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's interesting that right now we have this, um, what they call it the silver tsunami and stuff, but there is such a huge portion of the United States economy that's tied to small business ownerships. It's going to have to change hands in the next 10 or 20 years. It's actually a problem, right? If nothing happens, if we go down the path now and the number of average businesses that sell happen, continue down what we're doing now and people don't make that shift, we're going to lose close to a half of our GDP. If you look at what truly is going on, I think 51% of all employers are above the age of small businesses. They employ 51% of all people here in the United States currently. Some number like, I'm going to butcher the numbers, but they're all in the 65, 70 year age range, right? There's two things going on here. A lot of people need to make the shift of like, you don't have to start it. You can buy it, right? And make that shift. And then the business owners have to make that shift of, hey, this I, I'm not going to be in this seat forever. At some point, I need to sell it. And there's some things that need to happen before I can. How do you see like that shaping up over the next 10 to 15 years? Do you see... That's a great, great question. I wish there was more statistics in this industry, right? This whole weekend, we were just trying to like pull stats and it's like, you can't, unlike real estate sales, you can't pull like, when did it sell? How much did it sell for, et cetera? Why did it sell? So you got 10,000, it's over tsunami. I've heard that. I like that term. 10,000 
you know, business owners per day that are going to be retiring out of their business. Maybe they're leaving it to their kids, but we don't have record of that because you, you can't see it change hands. Maybe they're just shutting it down, which is super unfortunate. I hate seeing that because they could at least sell it for something. But then at the same time, what's crazy is like our demographic specifically is no joke right now. It's like early 20s to like maybe close to 40. It's 20s and 30 year olds because they built these digital company because we're handling right. just digital. They're building these digital companies. However, the people purchasing them are typically in their 40s is what we notice. Uh, oh, 30s and 40s. <laughs> so we're kind of in this like different age group and we're more cheeky on the website and we're on TikTok, we're on Insta, Insta. So we're just attracting this other demo. I mean, I really hope these 10,000 business, I didn't know those numbers of the GDP lowering just based on these small businesses retiring out or closing their doors. That's unfortunate. Yeah. I was looking at the, the U S in 2021, the U S GDP was $23 trillion. Just over one quarter of that amount could be gone in, in the inactions of a single generation. So at least a quarter of it would be gone if nothing happened. If, if we continue down the path and don't solve this problem. Yeah. And so let me promote this to every listener, right? Is that what about these companies manufacturing all these companies that have been around like 20, 30, 40 years plus older, those guys never digitalized their businesses. I just took over two spas during COVID. This is in San Diego, no joke to like flip them because I knew like, I like chaos. I like bad times to be honest, like believe it or not, because you could just get steals and you can like grow them. And the biggest companies grew during recessions. So pick them up. And I kid you not, they were both on written appointment books still. Both owners are in their 60s. Written appointment books. Like, I'm like, oh my God, no, accepting cash, not a merchant account. I was like, oh gosh. Anyways, we put in these amazing software systems. There was online scheduling. The sales went up. Like, everything was amazing. And imagine everybody listening, picking up these old school businesses and trying to move, make them more digital and like jumping into that if you're able to. Like, I think there's massive potential in that world. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a lot of people. That's what they search for. They look for something that like for me, until I moved and realized I like moving, <laughs> I like living in a new place. We'll probably be here a while. We moved to the Redwood Forest in Northern California, but our in-laws are nearby and some of the families here. It's like we moved to where they retired to. Before that, I was actually like looking for my qualifications. I was looking for is, you know, business well-run, seven figures or above so it can support management staff and stuff. Not because... If anything else, I've noticed anything under about two to five million dollars, there's just not the infrastructure isn't there to bring in a general manager, make sure the system and processes are right. It's you're still fighting that that startup phase. And then the other thing is, can I bring it current to technology? Like, is their technology outdated? They're not online, that type of stuff. And then, is there a way to turn it into a recurring revenue? Is there some type of subscription model you can add to it? So I was looking at weird things like coffee roasting companies and other stuff where like, look, get them online, get them set up with digital invoicing, digital actual paper, I mean, actual electronic accounting, and then put a subscription base into it and do it. But leaning towards now is content-based, website-based, things I don't have to basically touch anything and put it in a box and ship it. We'll see where that goes. There's just a huge number of businesses out there, everything from your mom and pop shops to service industry businesses that are hot. A lot of people, if you watch what the P&E firms are doing right now, they're doing roll-ups in heat and air, pest control, 
plumbing, all these different things, just because they see what's coming. And those industries are, I wouldn't say they're recession proof, but they're recession resistant, right? I have a pest control company in Oklahoma. I, that said, we're not going to have a problem, right? It, it, the economy goes down. People are, a cockroach runs across the kitchen counter. Your wife's still calling the pest control company. It's going to get dealt with, right? I don't think we, we don't, at least I don't know anybody that does, but we don't have any luxury services that we offer inside of the pest control, right? Um, thought about doing some cool stuff where we do deep cleans before and after, like mm -hmm. buy a cleaning company as an add-on. And then we go in, because a lot of times that's the problem. You got to really scour and clean things and remove the the old ovens and clean behind them and pull out the refrigerator, wipe the sides down. Anywhere that food can get, you got to clean everything so that there's no food source in them to come back to once you handle it. Otherwise, once the chemicals wear off, then there's food still there to attract them back. So I love that because that's, you're just cross-selling. Yep. So you're, the cost to acquire customers stays the same, but the profit, yeah, the service and the profit goes up. But going back to the whole space of what opportunities are available out there, just massive. You can think of any industry you want to get into from manufacturing widgets to doing stuff in a box, shipping subscription-based companies to digital marketing. A lot of the, a lot of these marketing agencies, they're coming for sale because they've hit that glass ceiling. The owners built these things, they build them to a certain size and they just don't know how to make them any bigger. And the other side of the other dual-edged sword of a marketing agency is typically the owner that creates a marketing agency is extremely creative. And after four or five years, he's got other ideas. Oh yeah, you nailed it. The three we have now and recently did, again, young, right? Spent six years, they're in their early 30s. They spent the last six years building these amazing firms and every single one of them, well, two reasons. First, they're excited to get into Web3 and blockchain, which is so funny. It was like three in a row that said that. I'm like, okay, I get it. And second was like, look, Christine, we have the skill set to go from zero to 2 million. But like above that, like we just don't have the skill set to scale it up. Just like you said, that glass ceiling for them, right? Mm -hmm. It does take a different skill set to, to take it to next level and scale it, right? So that's a legitimate reason, right? And that's the number one question buyers ask is this company is so great and profitable. Why are they selling? Selling it. These are the reasons, and then they get it, right? Right. And if you look at it, if you look at private equity, venture capital, and stuff like that, it's not uncommon. It's actually highly common that the person that does the startup that takes it from the bootstraps at the zero to the first few hundred grand is a different guy that often they switch to leadership that goes from, okay, we've got a proof of market, we have minimal viable product, we're out there. And now we've got to do raising money and take this thing to scale. Sometimes the same guy pulls it off, but very often after they raise the first little bit of money, the, the investors come back and go, look, I've got somebody over here. Once you become a VP, let this guy run this thing and we can do this. It just happens. And there's coaching programs out there. I won't name any of them off the top of my head, but there's coaching programs that'll show you that it's a different skill set from zero to a million. And then they there's one of the ones we were looking at that it coaches it away above 100 million, but the curriculum changes from 1 million to 5 million. And they have a whole new curriculum from 5 million to 10 and or 15 or what the, I forgot what the watermarks are. But if this is a skill set that you need to go to the next level and you need that you can learn it, or we need to help you find somebody to bring in for it. 
Yeah, no, no, and that's, I'm the zero to a million girl. By yeah. then it's like multiple managers in place and everything. I love the marketing hat, so I hold that till the very end. But everything's like, I don't need to be there. I'm getting bored. But I hired a professional because every like coach and mentor of mine was like, Christine, you could go so big. Like you have the skill set. But I'm like, so I hired this super expensive coach and, <laughs> and he would have been able to do it, but I just didn't. And I'm glad I hired him because it proved to me like I didn't want to do that. <laughs> so I was like, I don't want to do this. And that's fine, right? It's right. okay. It's interesting that I think you and I are probably, if you look, like there's a few tests out there. I've done all the Myers-Briggs and all that stuff. I bet we're pretty close on the, a lot of the stuff because like the EOS has one that whether or not you're an integrator or a visionary, and I am so far on the visionary side of it. It's insane, right? Well, I'm yeah. not an integrator. I like, I got like zero integrators. So I have to find integrators and operational specialists to put around me or, or nothing, nothing can do anything once. I can solve problems brilliantly and come up with the first solution. But if you ask me to do it two or three times, after the yeah. second time, I'm like, yeah, I don't want to. No, the partner we're bringing in, and I'm so excited, is that we did these reference checks this morning. I'm like, you've had partners, I've had partners. Let's give references. So three of mine, three years. My last partner in the software company, he's like, she's great. She's a, he said really great things. And he accidentally CC'd me because <laughs> this was big confidential. And he goes, look, oh, sorry. But he's like, I meant every word of it. And he said, Christine needs to have, she's the visionary and she has to have the implementer. If you're the implementer, great. You guys are going to rock and roll. And he is. So I was like, I'm so glad my partner said that. That's awesome. It's interesting that it's a common thread. I currently am on the search for another one here for this project I'm working on. And I rewrote the job description the other day. And it's pretty much I'm looking for somebody that has that that integrator, the implementer like mindset to take this project we're working on and as we acquire things, implement them. As a matter of fact, tomorrow I'm interviewing the CEO of EOS. So as part of the show. So that's one of the things I do a lot of times is if I'm trying to learn something, I'm like, hey, I really got to get this done. I'll just invite them. If it applies to buying, growing, or selling a business, I'll invite them on here. We'll ask the questions here. Kind of how this show started, actually. I got into mergers and acquisitions and thought, I've got a lot of questions. I'm going to just ask people. And then those conversations become good enough or interesting enough. I thought, well, other people might like this. So we recorded them. And then I was like, I just, I have all this equipment anyway. I should probably turn this into a podcast. I help. love that. And I've heard it multiple times is some people only want to acquire companies that have EOS in, in place. Yeah. None of our listings, that hasn't come up with mine, but just other people doing acquisitions, that, that's a massive benefit if that's kind of in place. I'm interviewing them. I've got a guy coming on for the, who teaches the great game of business, which is another business operating system. Jack Stack, I think is the author of the book by it, but it's about open books and making the business itself, the product. I've got a connection that's going to reach out and see if I can't get the author of scaling up. Sorry. Oh, nice. Oh my God. That's a great book. So, that's another yeah. one that everybody talks about. So the whole goal is like, it'll be a little mini series. Like you bought it, now what? <laughs> EOS particularly has a, a whole thing where it's like six weeks to get your business under control. It's like a crash course. I thought it, I'm interviewing him because I want to figure out if that's a great way. Like once you buy one, bring that process in to get everybody on the same page. And there's two things. When you acquire something, you've been around this for a while and you start making a lot of changes, you know, the, the employees kind of get that, who the hell is this guy and what is he doing? But if you're making changes that are nationally accepted and it's very common, like EOS or scaling up and they can go read the book and they can go see it, it's, I think it's an easier sell. It's an easier to get people enrolled in the process and on, on board because you're doing something that's known. 
So no, that's huge. And I do coach people try not to like get in there and start changing everything day one. You're just going to scare everybody off. We've been lucky. All our acquisitions, they keep the whole team. They don't change much. And if they're going to, they do it slowly. They kind of wait six months. Same yeah. with mine that I've sold. They keep the team. They don't change things, which is amazing, right? I've got some same team members to the spa I started 10 years ago. I sold it five years ago and they've got some of the same team members that are still there. Yeah. I'm not recommending anybody to make any major changes, but as far as like what, when you're ready to start systemizing things, especially in environments like roll-ups and stuff. How do you put something in place that gets a little less resistance? So the mini series on that is going to be about, you bought it, now what the hell are you going to do with it, right? I <laughs> and, love that. I love and that. most likely the answer is, for most of these guys, there are a lot of new people that never run a business buying businesses. For those people, I would say the first thing you do is set back and watch. Let it run the yeah. way it's always run. Observe, learn, talk to everybody. Don't make any changes. For you and people like me who've done this a bunch of times and you can see what's working and what's not working, if I need to implement something fast, what are the tools that people are more likely to accept without having so much pushback? So I'm kind of looking at these, the EOS scaling up, great game of business of, as ways to, hey, we don't do something with this, it's going to hurt us. It might open the doors because there's some businesses out there that they kind of need to sell. Good bones, good practicality, but they're just, they're on the wrong path. And right now I just walk away from those. It's like, look, <laughs> you're on a declining market. You're almost at the point where you need somebody that's a turnaround specialist, but looking at these other tools as to what's out there that would help with that. No, definitely. One thing I like to do, and again, I ease into it, is the price increase because people don't even notice. <laughs> like if you don't do it dramatically, they don't even notice. Inflation's happening right now. Honestly, they expect it. And the people you're going to lose if you do the math versus what you're gaining on the increase is not like you're going to end up with more and it goes straight to the bottom line. There's multitude of reasons. Again, I don't do that day one, but I'll do that as quick as I can. That's one change. Or like I leave the product like at the spa, there's like five different product lines. It drove me bananas, but I left it because God forbid someone comes in and the product is now gone because the new owner took it away. So I just leave things. <laughs> Don't fix what's not broken. Right. You know, it's funny. If you build a business, it's yours to build, create and make work. And if you buy it, it's yours to mess it up. Right. That's my kind of rule of thumb is you start turning the gears a different direction. You're more likely to break something than you are to fix it at the beginning. Yeah. And that's on a takeover. So takeovers, when I do the price increase, when I'm rolling up a company under mine, I actually mm -hmm. grandfather their pricing and it's always lower than mine. Of course, I just can't like, I just got to keep them excited and engaged and we got to prove our worth and maybe we raise it down the road, but we grandfather yeah. them in typically. Cool. So. I see you both, you cover both buying and, or for buyers and sellers. A lot of brokers only deal with selling. So what no, represents a... Oh, sorry to um, interrupt. We're on the sell side only. I just okay. happen to like, they always come unrepresented, so I do. But buyers coming straight to us, going to open up a division of the company next year on the buy side. Because oh. people are... Do, but it's just a little bit of a different type of billing. It's a different type of outreach. Like my head is always in, how do I sell my seller's companies as fast as we can? That's all I care about. I have to shift gears and I know how to do it. And to go source a business for the buyer, it's just like, like shifting gears. <laughs> I was just looking at the website and you had the four buyers and four sellers. And when I click on the four buyers, I guess there's a the Magnolia Rapid, Firm Rapid Acquisition Club. What is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, because we have an amazing database of buyers, right? So mm -hmm. buyer comes to us, they might, they look at our company and then they pass on it or whatever. 
and then we pass, we have a wait list for sellers. Like we pass on so many amazing ones because we're too busy or maybe it's too small. And then sometimes if it's like SaaS, I got a couple buddies that are like, Christine, we got a million in cash. If you find like a killer SaaS, can you just throw it to us? Which I do. And I've done a couple times, but then mm-hmm. I'm like, so we threw one on like a shark tank style. Cause I had like four friends and I'm like, Hey guys, you guys can fight over this one. Let's get you all on zoom. You grill the founder. I can't take this on right now, but you go for it. And we just did it. It was fun. We did it over the summer and this founder had like a little pitch deck. I was on there moderating. They're like firing questions at him. And I was like, wow, like we could totally do this and charge and build some recurring revenue in our firm. Um, right. And so like, Hey, you're going to have access to these off market listings before anybody sees them. We're going to vet them. You're going to come on shark tank style and the founder. And so, yeah, we're trying, we're launching it. We're collecting, we got people getting into the program, but we're just going to beta test it, not charge anything yet. So the seller will get a percentage they'll do on the transaction we'll do with them. And then We'll just charge probably 200 a month is what we're looking at for the buyers because they're in the market. We're doing all the work and vetting these sellers. Yeah. So we're going to have rapid acquisition. Actually, our great intern this summer, he came up with the name. We were so excited. I like it. I like Rack, yeah. uh, Rapid Acquisition Club. Rack. I like that. I'll put my name on your list there if you come across, and I'll buy some small stuff too. So if you come across B2B content sites or even like software review sites, something that one or two writers can maintain, like the, where the Ooh. contents are general, which is because yeah. I've got, I'm hiring writers as we speak now. If you've got something like that comes across there and like, Hey, it's just too small for us to represent. I'd pay a, a fee yeah. or whatever your broker. So we have, we have a 200,000, we want the EBITDA or the net down to the cash flow. Like mm-hmm. our requirement is at least 200,000 because we're moving up markets. But then with the rack, I was like, oh, maybe like, so let me ask you this in real time. And anybody else can like ask in the comments, yeah. like, is this like a, if it's netting out 50 K, is that still appealing to you? Well, on average I pay. So it has to pay for the writers and I can grow the content and switch that. I've got some people on that can help me switch to increase the profit. And I'm creating a holding co around B2B content to drive people to the podcast, to drive people to show listings, that type of stuff to show me deals. So anything in the B2B growing small, I would say SMB, small to medium business, growing the business maintaining the business, everything from software review sites to like comparing HubSpot to a different CRM tool and those type of sites. If they're generating more than say $2,000 a month, I'd be interested in it because they're really high profit margin companies, like 80, 90% of a profit margin on a content website. is not uncommon because you're just hiring one or two writers. I I would dip down pretty low if it's good content. The trick is a lot of these sites, they're made for SEO and the articles are horrible to read. And I'm wanting, I want sites that are great to read that's good content that i can actually tell my guests on the show to go to i can tell the audience to go check this out here's a great article on how to do xyz if you're in a business that's the kind of stuff i want to produce and have and then go back and clean up the seo and make the seo right i know there's a balance there but yeah i would dip down into smaller ones i'm talking to people in the space to do it i've interviewed a bunch of them Yeah. Yeah. And you could pick them up real cheap. You can do seller financing. These guys went out. So again, like our listings, we take premium. I mean, these are like 
perfect reputation, at least like five years in business, amazing yeah. team, et cetera, et cetera. And we price it high. We're more on the higher end. We could get better multiples because of that. But yeah. then these guys, it's like, okay, this is how much you want in your walk. Okay, let's put it out there. So yeah, I think it'll be fun. I'm excited to launch that. Again, we're, we just had our one year. I mean, we've been like, it's crazy, insanely busy, the amount of listings and closes we've had. So yeah, I keep trying to get over to work on that project. <laughs> I get it. I get busy with stuff too. One of the things you say on the website there is help, helping business owners achieve seamless exits. What is that? Oh, people can read our testimonials. You'll see seamless. Um, well, I read them. That's why I'm asking. I'm intrigued because I've been through quite a few, the process of getting LOIs and it's not seamless for me. Most of these guys are not prepared. So I'm really intrigued. Oh, on what, yeah. you do to make this, <laughs> what do you do to make the seller prepared to actually answer an investor's questions? Oh my gosh, our data room is so incredible. So we're, and we've got, like things are super automated. We use an amazing CRM system. It ties into DocSend. I can see every time they open data room, what they look at, how long they looked at it, all this amazing data. I'm like a data junkie. So it is a lot of, and we charge a set of a marketing fee. So I know a lot of brokers that don't charge anything and across their fingers, it's going to sell, right? And they get right. paid at the end. And I'm like, we do so much up front that they've got to pay the setup fee. We're doing a full-blown pitch deck, just like if you raise capital. I don't know why people don't do a full-blown pretty pitch deck when they sell their company. I have no idea, but we do it for them. We do a memorandum. We do a SIM, an FAQ inside the data room, a video. We've been doing videos with the founder. Again, we're working internationally. We've got a big listing in Romania. And I was like, hey guys, let's just, let me interview you for 30 minutes on Zoom and we'll put it in the data room because it's all the questions that people are going to ask anyways. Why are you selling the business? It comes better from them in real time and they're great founders. We're So, okay, we're doing a lot of that up front. I don't want to bother my sellers. I tell them, okay, we're going to give me your financials. Even just before this interview, I shot screenshots over because one person, five years of books, we contracted out a bookkeeper, five years of putting every single transaction into QuickBooks online. And I shot her screenshots. I was like, hey, here's how you add me as read only on your reports. I love QuickBooks. I'm going to pull every report. Don't even worry about that. I'm going to pull the reports we need. I'm going to do as much as we humanly possible. We've got the LOI template. Hey, buyer. You're about to write an offer. Hey, I've got a template you can use. Hey, I've got a buyer profile. Buyer profiles isn't any, I mean, I came up, I made that up. I just, you write love letters when you want a house in a tough, mm. tough market. Why not write a love letter? So it's like why they want to buy their business, screenshots of the credit score, screenshots of proof of funds. Again, this is like, right. It's coming in with the LOI and why they're qualified. And it kind of like, it's fun reading those. Cause, and then the owner loves it. The seller, they're like, wow, they really care about my company. Yeah. We, the only time I'm bothering, I said, seller. Okay. We're at mile 23 of a marathon. I'm making you sprint these last three miles. Okay. You need to put the pedal. I'll, all I care about is you have to grow this company and mm -hmm. they do. You've got to grow it because it looks really good. You're scaling up month over month over month. Please just do that. The only time I'm going to bother you, we're going to pre-qual every single person. We're going to make sure they have proof of funds, access to capital, that they're serious. And then I'm going to ask you, hey, what's your schedule? We're jumping on a 30-minute Zoom for a pitch. And then that person just asks the seller questions. And it's only 30 minutes. It shouldn't take longer than that. And then we're pushing to the uh, LOI. I try to keep them out of it as much as possible. I probably... And just in that marketing rollup, we talked to over 200 marketing agencies and I've been on calls helping other people. I'm a negotiator for real estate deals before I got into this. So people will bring me on and say, hey, will you help me work with this guy? And I was like, okay, first of all, 
not if you've already had two or three calls with them because you missed the key component. You didn't build rapport, right? Yeah. And that's what most good negotiations are based off is rapport, understanding what they want and how do you, how do we get them there? It's not like what most of these new guys think it is. I want the best price. That doesn't work. And like, not in my space anyway. My space is what is the owner trying to accomplish and can we get them there in a way that makes financial sense to us? And uh, nothing else matters, right? If we can help them get where they need to be, <clears throat> that makes financial sense to us and gets them where they want to be, then we do it. Sometimes sellers need to be somewhere where we can't take them. So... Yeah. That said, there's a lot of conversations that happen, over two, two, 300 conversations I've had. I've seen one, maybe two with the deal room set up. And one I can remember that's memorable because they had everything you mentioned, right? It was a marketing agency. They had the video. When we said, hey, we're, we're thinking about, we're serious here. Are you serious? Like, yeah. And it's like, within a probably, I don't remember, I think it might even, he might even sent it over before our first call because the emails were really good and kind of explain a little bit of the email. He sent us a Dropbox folder that said, okay, well, here's the room you need to find everything you need. And it had the video, it had the PowerPoint slides and stuff. And he says, I'll unlock the deeper folder. The financials weren't there, but it had a couple like high level stuff. He said, I'll unlock the, I'll give you the link to the deeper folders as soon as we, we get to the LOI state. And it was put together. That was a year and a half ago, and I still remember it. I can still remember the name of the. I won't say because they, they. I don't think where they're at in that process, and it's a very good sized marketing agency, but it's not common. No, and buyers have complimented us so many no. times on that. My logic for that is, and we don't put the tax. The only thing it's, we put PL as a balance sheet. It's going to not have tax returns, bank statements, strike right. reports. That's after right after LOI. Um, like immediately. So my theory is let's give them as much up again, they have to be qualified. They have to have a meeting, blah, blah, blah. Let's give them so much upfront that the due diligence, they're so confident writing an LOI because they just saw pretty much everything already. I want, and then it shortens the DD period, right? Because they got so much upfront and you're super transparent and it looks good. It's organized and they trust the seller. It's worked out really, really well. I'm probably pushing 300 reviews where I've reviewed over 300 businesses and I've seen it twice. I still get about one or two a week where somebody goes, Hey, I've been interested in selling. I was like, okay, well send me whatever you got on your business to kind of a teaser, send me a teaser. Most people don't even have anything to send me. They just want to jump on a call. Oh, right. Yeah. And if you're really seriously reaching out to somebody like myself who knows everybody, like I always joke around. It's like, I may not be your buyer, but I probably know them. I've interviewed almost a hundred people in this space and I'm, and I hold net networking meetings for fun where we meet other mergers and acquisitions guys twice a month. I meet at least a dozen people two different times a month in this space. I know who's buying what. So yeah. if you want to reach out to me and say, yeah, like I, I'm thinking about selling my business and you don't have anything put together. Oh my gosh. And then, oh, the other thing we go in, in the data room I forgot about, it's called owner's duties. I have my seller fill out in the beginning. Hey, you work 10 hours a week. What do you do? And they outline everything they do each week. Because again, that's another question. So we just hit as much as we can right up front that whatever elephant is in the room, and I've had some elephants from these sellers. I, I'm telling the person right up front on the phone. Right. Up I front. laughed when you said 10 hours because like... Here's a good one. So small company, about a million and a half, almost 2 million in revenue. Uh, they do car modifications. So tinted windows, radio install, deep clean, like detail work and stuff like that. Anyway, sounded interesting. I have a business partner who's in the automotive space. He owns a towing company where they tow an impound. And a lot of times they end up owning the vehicles because they don't get picked up or whatever. So if somebody could deep clean it and get it ready to take to auction, it would be cool. So it would be a good add on for him. 
got to talking to him and not one, but two of those people in that company carried on three or four jobs. Like one of his lead guys, the guy doing window tending pulled 16 hours a day, six days a week. And he liked doing it. He didn't want to let anybody else like, they're like, no, why is he working double shifts every day? Well, he's paid off a commission off job. He does. He wants to do them all himself and he wants to make the money and he's a hard work. He's been doing it for years. And I was like, yeah, but what if, if he leaves, I got to hire two people. Right. So the owner in this particular case, I said, why are you thinking about selling? He goes, well, I kind of want to, I'm a pro golfer and I want more time for golf. He goes, I'd even be willing to stay on part-time. And I was like, and here's a famous, I was like, okay, what would part-time mean to you? He said, oh, 40 hours a week would be great. I'm like, dear Lord, how many hours a week are you working? He goes, 75, 80. And I'm oh, like, no. how many, like, what exactly do you do? And like, this guy is not only the lead sales guy, he does his own accounting. And I got one guy who's commission only who is technically, I mean, who is currently a contract laborer because he's works on contract only, like in 1099, who technically isn't because he doesn't have any of his own tools and stuff. And my business partner is an attorney. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I say that. He's about to pass the bar. And he's taking the bar in February, but he's finishing up law school. He's like, I can't get in the middle of this. That one employee is going to, at some point, it's going to be a problem because he's not truly a 1099. He's not got his own tools. He's not, he's commission only, but it's, he's one accident or one thing away from, wait, why don't I have workers comp? Love that the owner's responsibility. I laugh when you said 10 hours because I've yet to meet an owner Daily, of a company. I swear to you, because one was actually a good friend of mine. And then I was like, Jill, she's not even doing 10 hours a week. She's like, oh, put 15 to be safe. I'm like, you're not even doing 10. Like, I know your lifestyle. No, they legit are not cool. doing that many hours. So we outline it and it's super reasonable what they're doing. That owner's responsibility to that deal room is absolutely, I would love to see that. As a matter of fact, I might actually peek my head in there and see what you got as far. I looked at one yeah, of your no, listings no. earlier. But... Yeah, there's a couple listings, the ones you, we were talking about. Yeah. So I'll send, you'll see it yourself. <laughs> I'll be straight up. I'm not really big on doing the whole credit report and all that stuff because whatever whatever I'm after, I'll either raise the funds for or pay cash for it. So I'll be able to show you that. I don't mess with any of that. I would only require, it's crazy. Again, brokers are requiring mm -hmm. like, we want proof of funds, bank statements, credit score at uh, the first phone call. They haven't even <laughs> talked to the owner. No, it's crazy to me. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's so far down the line the day you bring the offer in. No, if it's all cash, I don't care about that. They don't have to yeah. put, they still do, but they don't have to put the credit score because they're paying all cash. And most our deals are all cash. Some over asking, which is always nice. And yeah. so, yeah. What I, I'm down to the point where it's like, I'll figure out kind of where the range is and I'll move cash into those accounts. I'll show you accounts where it has just enough or just above what you're, because <laughs> you just don't need to know. And it's, or a lot of times if I've got other partners on, I make them show cash too, just because like, look, not just my cash we have, I've got somebody else that's going to come in with me. He's got cash too. I was just curious because a lot of people in this space, they're really put off by that whole broker so I want your opinion. We're about to wrap up here, but what's your opinion on this? I've got a lot of these acquisition entrepreneurs that won't touch brokers who ask for proof of funds before getting to see any of the details for two reasons. One, it's a little intrusive. And second of all, questionnaire on these things, they're asking how much money you have available. I was like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to negotiate a purchasing this at one point. That's kind of none of your damn business, right? No, that takes the joy out of my negotiations. I don't want to know how much money they got to spend. I love negotiating. Yeah. It's, fun. it's like a game of chess. And yeah, no, no, no. I would never ask how much money do you have to spend? We have a buyer criteria. Like if they do pass on one or, like, or people just reach out, Hey, Christine, I'm looking for this, 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 this. We have a really great buyer criteria. Yeah. Okay. Well, we 
we don't even ask how much capital you have on hand. I don't even, we don't even ask that. We just ask like purchase price, how much do you mm -hmm. want it cash flowing? Da, 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 da. No, I don't need to know how much cash they could come up. And this is the other thing is my, the seller carry situation. <laughs> I'm super strict on and an earn out. I'm literally max 20% my seller would carry. And that's, okay. that's only if it's like been listed for a little bit and while, when I say mm -hmm. a while, I mean more than three months because we sell quick. So if it's, let's say over three, maybe we'll start considering a seller finance portion of 20%. But like, there's so many ways that you guys can go get capital. So me telling you how much cash you have in the bank doesn't really matter. Right. Again, you can pull out of stocks and crypto and IRA. And I like, hate using my own money anyway. Like that's a bad use of my capital. If I've got investors oh, or people yeah. that want in on the deal, keep my powder dry. And like I say that I'm selling some real estate right now just because I want to have more available, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, cash but, is king and hold it. Like I'm all about OPM. We just had one that tried to do 100% seller financing last week, back and forth. He's like, well, I want to put my money in real estate. So I knew he had it. And right. I'm like, hey, I'm like, hey, I agree. I'm all about OPM. I'd be doing the exact same thing. Like, oh, you're not using your own money. You're using other people's money. We're just, again, it's such a hot seller's market. Like why? We don't really need to do that right now. Maybe later. Do most of your sellers want to totally leave or are some of them interested in? So a lot of times the buyers that I know of, they're looking to buy 75, 80% of the company, but keep the owner around to deal, especially in these brick and mortar companies where they've been around for 20 or 30 years. I mean, this may not be true with some of your clients because they're newer businesses, but a lot of times there's some old relationships around that are great to just keep keep the, the old dogs around in case they need to answer questions, put out fires and stuff. About a year and a half, two years ago, we were looking at buying, here's a good example. We were looking at buying a concrete plant that produced concrete products for construction. And it had been around for three generations, 60 something years, three generations now. And most of the people they do business with, they've known for a long time. Family goes out to dinner with them, everything else. So our offer on the table was, look, we're going to acquire this. We're going to run it for about five to seven years. We're going to buy a bunch of them. And we're probably going to sell it to a PE firm. I've already talked to other concrete manufacturing companies. What our offer was is like, we'll buy, I think it was the first one was at 75 or 80% of it. And then you get to participate in the backside of what we do four or five years from now, which will probably be bigger than we showed them the model and probably be bigger than or as big as your initial purchase. And they're like, well, why would you want to do that? I said, there's three generations of knowledge there. Mm -hmm. wow. And I don't have anybody on my, and there's 52 employees that we're responsible for. My team, we're mergers and acquisition guys, right? We're attorneys. We have a team that we're marketing guys, not concrete guys. So if something comes up, I want the expertise to lean back on, or if there's a relationship, they had three of their clients that were too big, meaning that they were too much of their overall mm -hmm. revenue. And I was like, if something goes wrong with one of those three, I want you to go, whatever you've done to keep that relationship going for the last 60 something years, you know, I want you to go do it. Go to dinner with them, do whatever, but you don't have a financial incentive if you don't own a piece of this. So we were looking at doing that. Do you have anybody doing that type of deal where you're want, or wanting to keep the original founder involved in any sense? No, again, seller's market. And I, don't, I just do deals differently than I think anybody else does. Mm -hmm. I We write it in the purchase agreement. They're going to get two weeks of training, 80 hours, which is wow. like, again, so all of ours we've done so far, we can get away with that. There's managers in place. There's automations. Like they can spread those 80 hours. And I always advise it's too much to 
do that in two weeks. So they can use it however they want to use it, however yeah. they want to spread it out. Above and beyond that, they're going to pay my seller consulting fee, right? Yeah. hundred dollars, 200. That's been fine. Okay. And I see, cause I learned my lesson real hard. That was a um, consulting right. fee arrangement too. Yeah. Yeah. I had my first deal. My broker wrote in 90 days of training. Oh, Christine, he's never going to take that. He's going to have you there for a week. You got managers. You're never there. And he took all night. I think we had to renegotiate. He wanted all 90 full time. I was on my next venture. I just lost it. No. So I'm like, I don't want to make that mistake. We have bigger, the bigger transactions, obviously it's case by case. So mm -hmm. they might need to stand for a month or two. But what we've done with that one is the CEO, they each only work genuinely 10 hours a week, but that CEO has these relationships with the big multi-million dollar agencies, but he's already hired a biz dev person as the company's listed, Hired them. They took over the relationships. It's going really well. They've landed a big client because everybody's like, oh, well, CEO lands the big clients. Well, now we prove that wrong. And so it's an easier handoff. But again, they're, they'll be willing to stay part-time for a few months, but there's none of this two-year earnout. There's not a single owner. <laughs> One of my friends finished his earnout, his two-year. I would have put money down. He was, he was going to walk. It's very hard to do an earnout. It is. You have a boss and you're watching them change your company and da, 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 da. So I'd say nine out of 10 walk, never finish it. They leave money on the table. So I don't like those, but long story short, we just had our first listing that the owner wanted to stay on and it's software based. And he's like, I want to stay on full time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so, so easy to sell. Sold two weeks over asking all cash. Me and my partner that's coming on, we were this close to taking it because I'm like, oh my God, like if we had our venture arm set up, if we weren't so busy, we would have grabbed it in a heartbeat. I'm like, dude, he's staying. He's amazing. So that is the case where they're staying. And the choir is a bigger company and, and mm -hmm. just Said, he's going to make, he's getting a big fat salary. He's getting cash off the table to buy real estate right now. Mm -hmm. He's getting a fat salary. He's getting commissions. And then he'll have, I don't think he's doing equity though. I always like that in the bigger parent company because then mm -hmm. you have a potential rate, make, make even more. But yeah. that, that was cool. That's rare. <laughs> I interviewed Adam Coffey. He sold that. He had a heat and air business. He sold like, I want to say five or six times. To the, the last sale was over two point something billion dollars, right? So like they, they basically a and e firm bought it, bought 80% of it, left 20% on the table for them. And then they grew it through acquisition and then another PE firm bought it. So they sold to five different PE firms before he decided he was done being CEO of it and became an advisor. Got two books out on it, but no, it's an I've intriguing model. It is. I know. And I regret that. So again, HVAC as a kid, my dad had his company yeah. 20 years, but I went into other stuff and I don't know enough HVAC anymore. And I'm like, dang, I could have been doing those roll-ups and selling <laughs> It, that is like one of the hottest right now. That's what's going on in that world. And like, yeah. darn it. Cool. We're running out of time here. So let's do a couple cool things. Give me three things. If they don't remember anything else that they heard on the show, they remember these. What would you want people to remember you by? You caught me. We will do anything it takes to get that deal all the way to that finish line. Number one. Number two, make it as easy as possible. Of course, it becomes a little bit of a roller coaster towards the end. Number two, just making it a fun process, right? Number three, oh, how did I not talk about this? Our biggest thing, of course, get you the most money I can, easy transaction, quick transaction is the buyer. Every single transaction we've done, we find the most amazing buyers. I have a no a-hole rule, like across <laughs> the board. As sellers have come to me where I'm like, oh, can't work with this person. So we have to turn down the listing because I know out the gate. So we just, the sellers are so friends with the buyers. They hit it off. The baby is moving to an amazing person, switch off. So yeah, those would be the three. 
how do people reach out to you? And let's make sure we get that before we close this off. If somebody wants to reach out to you, do business with you, just ask you some questions. What's the best way to reach you? LinkedIn for sure. So my name's not super common, so it's easy to find me. Message me there. It cuts through the clutter. Email's too hard. The magnoliafirm.co is our website. Sit in the Magnolia Firm on, on all the social channels that we finally launched and then YouTube also. Cool. I'll make sure all that's in the show notes for you guys are out there. And I appreciate you having you on your show today. So thank you very much for being here. No, thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. Cool. Hang out a second. That's the show, guys. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show. Ask questions. Uh, suggest a guest or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline, leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and, and, and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business, you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the IT exchangenet.com slash marketplace how to exit that link will be in the show notes visit them now